It's great to see everyone. I can tell you guys are on a good mood tonight. It's an awesome testimony by Caleb. If you missed last week, it was probably the single message I've ever had where I've had the most response. And it was confronting the lie because I don't know if you keep track of kind of contemporary Christian news, but basically a famous pastor did a funeral and the funeral service went viral. At the last time I checked last week, it was 75,000 shares. And unanimously, this is amazing, this is exactly right. And the theology was that God's hand orchestrated the fiery death of a family of five. And the prayer of the funeral service was just heartbreaking. We read part of it. If you know me, the goodness of God is just this like visceral thing in me that I have to get out. And so I wanted to just take us through like trials, tribulations, and tragedies. What is God's role in it? And all the logical fallacies that we believe in these things and, and how this is so instrumental about what we agree in God's role is going to change everything in our life. And so last week, I spent that time in that and I got a ton of questions, which was great. I love questions. I'm never threatened by anybody's questions. I don't claim to have it all figured out either. But what I believe I'm going to preach, I'm going to preach with passion. So if you have questions for the last week or uh, tonight, um, I'll be in the back. I love those things. My email is super easy. It's eric at epiclife.org. Um, I'll go to coffee. I'll send you my notes. So on my notes, I'll say things, and I don't want to like blast you guys with like 4,000 scriptures, but I have like footnotes, and every single thing I say, I put a little footnote that doesn't always make it on the screen. So there's something I say, you're like, hey, where's that in the Bible? I got it for you. I can just send you the notes, all right? But I realized that something was left off last week is because we talked about how God is not instrumental in the trials, tribulations, and tragedies of your life. And we left that, what is the biblical response? It's joy. And for some people, that was kind of hard. It's like, well, wait. And I didn't get a whole lot of time to, you know, finish that kind of thought. So tonight, what I'm going to do is confront the lies about joy in trials. Because, yes, it is true that trials, tribulations, and tragedies, our biblical mandate, our response is joy. It's throughout the New Testament. And it sounds kind of crazy, right? It's like, all right, so God is not involved in trials, tragedies, and tribulations, but he's commanding me to have joy. Help me understand that. And this confusion actually is responsible for a lot of the bad theology we've developed. Because many believe that the command to be joyful is actually proof that God is behind the trials. If God instructs us to be joyful, surely he's instrumental in the occurrence of trials. Otherwise, it doesn't make much sense. And this line of reasoning is throughout modern theology right now. It goes something kind of like this. I'm going to paraphrase it. It starts with trials, tribulations, and tragedies are God's will. If trials, tribulations, and tragedies are God's will, then God must have a reason for sending them that we just don't understand yet. And we must not question God's purpose in their occurrence either, because if you know Isaiah 45, 9, it says that, shall the clay question the potter's hands? And so therefore, God's forming and shaping you through trials and tribulations, we must not inquire like the foolish clay. And actually, our obedience to never inquire is actually lauded as an act of faith. And we're to trust God because he's actually orchestrating these events for our good despite our misunderstanding. 
And therefore, our response to trials and tribulations must obey in agreement that they are God's hand at work ordaining them. And really, joy in this understanding is really the only acceptable response. It's the only obedient response if God is ordaining your circumstances. That's modern theology right now. Some of you guys are like, amen. Sounds about right. That's what I was taught. All of us would hear say, amen, if I said, and that's the truth, right? I'm not going to take you there. Well, this might be the prevailing teaching. I'm about to mess you up right now, okay? While this might be the prevailing teaching of our time that many believers believe it's deeply flawed and misguided for one reason is that it was never modeled in the life of Jesus. What's troubling about that theology is we never saw it modeled in Jesus. We should be concerned that Jesus wasn't joyful for his trials. Wait a minute. Before you yell heresy. (laughs) At the death of his beloved friend Lazarus, Jesus didn't rejoice, he wept. At the sight of thieves in the temple, Jesus wasn't happy, he was pissed. When Jerusalem wouldn't repent and receive Jesus as Savior, Jesus didn't high-five Peter, he actually wept and mourned over the city. At the revelation that the Pharisees were more concerned about laws instead of lives, Jesus was joyous. he was furious. The night before the cross, Jesus didn't demonstrate elation. He experienced deep agony. In anticipation of being crucified, Jesus didn't lift his hands in praise. He fell down on his face, and he pleaded for another way. We never see Jesus rejoicing for his trials and troubling circumstances. That should be concerning to us in our theology. The truth is, is that we are confused about our instruction to be joyful. We're not instructed to be joyful about our circumstances. In fact, we're advised sometimes to be angry about our circumstances, but not to allow anger to become grounds for sin in a foothold. Ephesians 4.26, this is the one you probably know the most, it says, be angry! And sin not. It didn't say, be joyful. It said, no, be angry. And sin not. And there's several of verses. Same thing. But wait, I thought I'm supposed to rejoice always. I'm always supposed to have a joy here. Be angry, but sin not. Anger is an expected and reasonable response to many of your circumstances. But it's just not anger either. The Bible affords us all sorts of responses Solomon in Ecclesiastes put it this way. He says, there's an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather, 
A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up is lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. But wait, I thought you were supposed to rejoice always. God actually permits and expects us to experience our natural emotions for every event and every season of life. The instruction for us when we experience them is just simply exercise self-control so they don't own you. Experience what you experience, but exercise self-control so that they do not determine your behavior. It might be the first time you've ever heard this thought, but here's the truth behind it, is that God expects you to be authentic in your pain. That might be liberating to you tonight. Because you've been pretending not to feel things, but God actually expects you to be authentic in your pain. God is not expecting you to be joyful when a loved one is diagnosed with cancer like my mother. God doesn't expect you to be joyful when a family member dies. God doesn't expect you to be joyful when losing a job. In these times, God is unsurprised by your authentic response. Yet many Christians are trying to manufacture a response of joy when their situation was never supposed to produce joy in the first place. Christians believe that if they manufacture a joyful response to their trials, that the pain won't exist. That's not authentic joy. When the Bible says rejoice, he's not talking about fake it until you make it. No matter what you make your mouth say, no matter what status you put on your Facebook, no matter what little antidote you put upon your pain, it's not authentic joy if you really believe in your heart that God is causing your pain. It's not authentic joy because trials, tribulations, and tragedies are not authentic forms of goodness. How do we authentically joy in God when tragedy is not authentic goodness? Truly, God doesn't think we're, we're foolish in that connection, does he? Many of my friends are. He's not expecting you to fake your response to pain by manufacturing joy. He's expecting to be brokenhearted. He's expecting you to mourn. He's expecting you to weep and grieve. Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Revelation 21, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there'll be no longer any death. There'll no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. But I'm supposed to rejoice always. I'm not supposed to feel these feelings. And we suppress them, we manufacture joy. When really God has built his reputation on being the one who comforts you. That's why he's called the Prince of Peace, for Pete's sake. 
That's why he's called the God of comfort. That's why he's given us the spirit who's called comforter. Why would those be his names if we never experienced the need to be comforted? This would all be a major contradiction if we were supposed to always rejoice for our circumstances. Now, if you're confused, if you're like, I'm, I hear you, but I'm not getting it. Here's what we're confused about. Is we are confused about where our joy belongs. Rejoice always. And we think rejoice for what I have, for what's happening But your joy does not belong in tragedy or the circumstance. The instruction in the Bible is actually clear, but we missed it. We got too excited to build a theology that God gives and takes away. We got too wrapped up in that great Chris Tomlin song that just gets us every time. (laughs) That we didn't get the words right. Last week I shared, like, those are Job's words, chapter 1. And everyone reads the first chapter of Job because they kind of know the rest of the story, like lots of bad things happen. Job blames God, lots of bad things happen. But you don't know it, in chapter 42, Job repents for everything he said. They got called him on the carpet and says, man, I got to like inform you about your theology. And Job repented. We don't make Job our poster child, we make Jesus our poster child. But the Bible actually is clear on the topic of joy. It's that we are to rejoice in the Lord, not for our circumstances. Are you seeing this? We're supposed to rejoice in the Lord, not rejoice for our circumstances. We're commanded to give thanks during every circumstance, not give thanks for every circumstance. Do you see the difference? It's an exhortation to be thankful despite our circumstances, not for them. Your trials and trying circumstances were never intended to be the object of your joy. Many of us are trying to figure out why does my faith not work because I'm making my pain try to be joyful and it never was supposed to be. It never was supposed to be the object of your joy. And the mistake many of us make is that we're trying to rejoice for our hardship instead of rejoicing for who God is. The difference changes everything. The distinction properly aligns your joy with truth, the truth that God is not ordaining every circumstance. If you know us, you know I got two kids. Maverick and Scarlett, they're here last week, flying around. Scarlett's four, Mav's two. It's crazy. And if you've known us for a little while, You know that our son Maverick, when he was born, he spent 10 days in the NICU. When he's in the NICU, I didn't have joy that he's in the fact that he's in the NICU. I didn't have joy because I'm like suddenly experiencing trials. I wasn't like, woohoo, my son is in bad shape. This is awesome. This is what I'm seeing like the very first days he's alive and like he's trying to, like we couldn't even hold him for several days. 
He's intubated. He's got all the wires and things. It's just, it was awful. I didn't go to God and like, God asked, what is your plan in this? I didn't ask God, what do you want to teach me through this? I didn't do all the silly things that we typically do when we face trials. I was, was I grieved? Absolutely. Did I cry harder than I've ever cried before? I still can't look at the photo. Even though my son's healthy, the photo gets me every single time. But stronger than my grief was my belief that God is good. He was not responsible for my trial. I had no reason to shake my fist at God for why my son was in the NICU because he was in no place responsible for that. He is my comforter. He's not my afflictor. And this is what I learned in these times is that your belief must always be bigger than your grief. Your belief must always be bigger than your grief. My response to when this happened was like, I've got muscles for this. Man, does this suck, but I've got muscles for this. Why? It's because I didn't wait to have a tragedy to figure out my theology. And when trial came upon me, it encountered my unwavering belief that God is good and I was able to have joy in God despite my circumstances. I was able to preserve my joy in the Lord because it wasn't the Lord who was responsible. In response, I stood up. In response, I fought back. I never confused or mixed God into my trial. Instead, I prayed against it. I laid hands on his little lungs and I commanded them to be strong. I held hands with my wife and prayed for strength, thanking God that he was good. I stared my pain right in the face and I said, my joy is off limits. My joy is not for sale. My joy is not for bargaining. It is off limits to whatever life brings to me. I'm not blaming Satan for putting my son in the NICU, but I blame him for the fall of creation for tricking man and allowing evil to come in the world. But what Satan wants to do in those moments is be like, this is all God's plan. I'm like, it's a crappy plan if it is. <laughs> now that sounds offensive to you, but I believe that's like God's like, good word, Eric. So <laughs> if it's like God's like, yeah, that w- if that was my plan, that would be pretty crappy, huh? Fortunately, we have a good father, not a capricious father. But I looked at my pain and was like, my pain, you do not have control over me. You influence and affect me. I feel you pain, but my joy is off limits and the two are not in unison. And to Satan, because you're such a liar, I'm going to commit my life to making sure you are exposed as the fraud and the liar that you are, convincing millions of people that God is responsible for their pain. Because in our pain, we decide to choose joy. We had tears. We had heartbreak. We had fear. You don't get many smiles in the NICU. I'll tell you that much. But this is us having confidence and faith that it's going to work out. 
despite our pain, despite the tears. And, and I walked with Eric that day that when Mav was born and all of a sudden things started going crazy and he couldn't sustain himself. And I was like, doing okay. I'm like, all right, I'm okay. And he's like, sat down. He's like, so how have you really gotten in touch with what you're feeling? I was like, let me feel. And I just lost it. Cried harder than I can maybe ever remember. But yet still in that, there never was the thought of like, God, where are you in this? And instead of rejoicing in my trial, I wasn't trying to find, God, show me joy in the wallpaper of this NICU. Show me joy in these nurses. Like, I'm thankful for the people that we have, but don't mistake me. I was not thanking anything or anybody that my son was in the NICU. Instead, I had to confront, how is my attitude going to be? Despite my tears and my pain and my grief, how do I take control over how far that pain affects my attitude? The sorrow lasts for the night, but how does it go? Joy comes in the morning. So it's a time to weep and grieve, but also a time to be joyful. And so the very first day after he's in the NICU, I was like, I got to do something with my mind because my mind wants to be consumed with why this is happening. And I know God is not responsible for it, but I need to put my mind to work. And so I did something that was kind of fun. You guys know all like the Chuck Norris facts, the Jack Bauer facts? So my personal therapy was to come up with my own baby Mav facts. And I'd write that, like, to, to occupy my mind, I'd write these different, like, facts, and different people started contributing them, and it's super fun. So this is, like, now a relic of my pain and my joy. Saying, like, God, I, that was like, intense stuff, but you know how God instructs people, like, in the Old Testament, build stones after he does something cool? So I have a poster. <laughs> but I'll put these in the, in the back, and you guys can read some of them. There's a lot of good ones. Number 17, when baby Maverick peed his first diaper, it marked all of California, his territory. <laughs> baby Maverick never has to get the girl. When he was born, he got them all. <laughs> oh, there's so many good ones in here. So I'll put these in the back. You guys can read them. They're fun. And that was my response to trials. Fortunately, I had come to the point in my life at that point where my theology was correct. I was already committed to the God's goodness. And when your theology is correct, pain is not a threat to your joy or your faith. When your theology is correct, pain is no longer a threat to your joy or your faith. You can experience deep grief, but retain your joy in the Lord. Because the goal isn't to avoid pain. The goal is to survive your pain with your faith intact. That's what proper theology does. You're not supposed to ever, like, not have pain. Remember Jesus? Like, why are all of us Christians, like, surprised we have trouble in the world? Jesus is like, you'll have trouble. <laughs> Clearly told us. He doesn't say, like, I'm going to cause you trouble. The world's going to cause you trouble. We're like, Jesus is causing me trouble. The world causes you trouble. So we can't have the expectation that we're never going to have a hard day or have pain, or have tragedy, or have loss. We live in a fallen world for sure, and we're redeeming all things to him, but that does not mean we never experience pain. 
But the goal is that not that we avoid pain or that we can somehow avoid it happening, just the goal is to actually survive the pain with our faith in place. But you better get your theology right before something goes wrong. Otherwise, you will lower your theology to match your pain. Let me say that again. You better get your theology right before something goes wrong. Otherwise, you will lower your theology to match your pain. This is what I found is that what you believe during your trial will become your truth. What you believe during your trial will become your truth. Fortunately, the thing that's seared into my psyche, my faith, my heart, in the middle of my trial was that God is good. And you know, I'm much stronger on the other side of it. Now, some people want to say, well, God needed that trial so that you'd have that strength. No, he didn't. <laughs> I'm just lucky that I had the theology to stand up to because other people get steamrolled. Paul talks about people being shipwrecked in their faith. They can't endure the persecution. Jesus, we looked at three passages last week about Christians who have persecution and then fall away. Trials never come to you with good intentions for you. It's never like, here for your monthly checkup. <laughs> never. Now, hopefully you can see now that the command to have joy has nothing to do with our circumstance, circumstance and everything to do with God. God is where our joy belongs. Our joy should be focused on who he is, not what happened to us. Your rejoicing is always supposed to be based in faith, not based in discouragement. Hope does not disappoint, but how many know that hardships do? That's why you can rejoice in the Lord, because Jesus is the hope of the world. Interestingly, I don't know if you knew this. I didn't know this for a while. John 15 says, the joy we possess as Christians actually comes from Jesus. These things I've written to you, this is John 15, 11, the things I've written, I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You don't need to try to be joyful. Joy is a deposit from the presence of God in you. It's why joy is a fruit of the Spirit. You don't need to go to a fruit stand to go get some, yourself some joy. You have joy by having God's Spirit in you. It's already a deposit in you. That's why it's the fruit of the Spirit. And it makes sense now that we recognize that the command is to rejoice in the Lord because our joy comes from Jesus in the first place. He's just asking you to give what he's already given to you. You don't have to earn it or strive for it or get more of it. Just like use what I've already placed in you. Because Jesus is our living hope in whom all nations shall place their hope. He is the hope of glory dwelling in us. The joy Jesus gives us is so significant that people are supposed to grab us by the collars and say, tell me why you have all the joy in you. That's how good Jesus is in the hope that he places in us. So what is our hope? Is that we have hope in God and hope in who we are. We hope not in what is seen, as Caleb said, or Caleb said, what I said, Caleb, Caleb tape, Caleb, I like Caleb, I'll just go with that. <laughs> we hope not in what is seen, but is in what is unseen. We're not of this world, we are citizens of heaven, and we're seated with him in heavenly places. That will get your mind 
crazy. We hope to be face to face with our Father and receive the rewards that await us. We hoped in our home in heaven, a place where God takes away pain, not gives it. It is with this hope that we have joy regardless of our circumstances. And our hope is made secure when it's placed in places and things that cannot be destroyed. Our hope is secured when it's placed in places and things that cannot be destroyed. Losing joy is a sign of misplaced hope. If you have no joy, it's because you've placed hope in something that the enemy could steal. Because the joy that, that if Jesus gives it to you, it cannot be taken away without your permission. If Jesus is the one who gives you joy, it cannot be taken away without your permission. Or at the very least, you putting your joy into something that can be destroyed, that your joy never was supposed to have. It makes sense now why someone can lose faith during trials because their hope was placed into something that wasn't secure. Faith, remember, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Why did they lose their faith? Because they had their hope in something that the enemy stole. The enemy can only steal your faith as if you've placed your hope into something that he could take. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But did you know this? Anderful gave me this last week. I was like so angry that I didn't know this verse. I wasn't angry. I was excited to hear it. It's Proverbs 17, 22. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Disappointment and discouragement is toxic to our faith, but the good news is that joy is the medicine when it's rooted in hope. Hope in eternity is what empowers us to see past our pain. It's designed to give us perspective to help sustain us while we endure the pain. Now, this is exactly how Jesus endured his pain, is he had hope. Hebrews 12, it talked like the joy is set before him. But we know that Jesus wasn't joyful going to the cross, was he? Pleading for there to be another way. What does that mean? It means that he saw past his present suffering to a future where all God's children were reconciled to him in heaven. That's the joy set before him, not the beating he was about to take. He knew that on the other side of his suffering was eternal glory and reconciliation, and then the sons and daughters are coming home. That's how Jesus endured his pain and how he endured his suffering. And the same is true for us. When we correct our mindset and bring our theology into a correct position and place, we can have the proper response to trials, not allowing it to affect our faith. We mourn and grieve and weep for sure, but our joy is off limits. And in those times, we authentically can have authentic joy. A joy that is not rooted in things that can perish, but rooted in eternity. And let me end with this as a reminder. I mentioned this a little bit last week, but joy is the very thing that Satan wants to steal from you. Joy is the very thing that Satan wants to steal from you. How does Satan steal your joy? 
I think the primary way is by convincing you that God is the one responsible for your trials, tribulations, and tragedies. How does the enemy steal your joy? He convinces you that God's to blame. Instead of you saying, Satan, what have you done? I rebuke you. He, asks, he convinces you to ask God, God, what are you doing? Remember, you cannot authentically rejoice in the Lord if you believe he is the one who's responsible for your pain. I don't believe it. You can't authentically rejoice in the Lord if he's the one who's authoring all your pain and suffering. And this is why it's so vital that we understand who's responsible for our trials. Is it God or is it Satan? If Satan convinced you that God is responsible, he wins the prize of stealing your joy and also disarms you so that he can steal from you all the more. The command to rejoice in the Lord is designed to reaffirm that God is not the one who's stealing from you and that he has added the benefit that Satan is now on a treadmill from ever stealing your joy. When the enemy wants to come and steal your joy and you replace it with more joy, you place him on a treadmill of frustration. Because the enemy's lazy. He gets easily frustrated. If he poses a difficult target, he goes and finds another target. So your greatest response, if you want to defend yourself against the enemy, is to take these trials and tribulations and have your joy be off limits because that is his goal. And he might step up the game, but at least you know what the strategy is. If you rob him from the prize, maybe you'll find another target. Because there's only one way in which we can make the devil flee. Do you remember what that is? Resist. Resist is the single way, mention the Bible, in which the devil flees from you. There's other things about taking authority, but there's only one passage in all the Bible that talks about the devil fleeing from you is resisting. Now, if you have a theology that tells you God is orchestrating and ordaining all your pain, how are you resisting the devil? How does that work? It doesn't. Because joy is the key ingredient to our faith that empowers us to resist him. How do I resist the devil? Do I like just pump more iron? Like, what do I do? <laughs> you speak truth to lies and you make your joy off limits. The lie is that God is causing you your pain. The truth is that an enemy that steals, kills, and destroys, there's a decent chance he might have a hand in this. I'm going to call it as it is. And by the way, my joy is off limits. No toko for you. Because it is the joy of the Lord that is my strength. How do I get strong to resist the devil? Have joy. The joy in the Lord is my strength, Nehemiah 8.10. If you are without joy, then you are without strength to resist him. Instead, rebuke the devil by your joy and you'll find strength. What you believe about God in your trials and what you believe about joy matters. It determines whether or not you get back up. And you need to figure out your theology before you face trial because Satan will create the theology for you if you don't. Create or figure out your theology before you face trials or Satan will create it for you. 
And here's the last, is that it won't be truth. I love you guys. Thanks for being here tonight. <laughs>